Ultrasound Gel Podcast. Ultrasound Gel Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Ultrasound Gel Podcast. Mike Pratt's here with my good buddy, J.A. Jacob Avila. And we're going to start off with a case as we do a published case series, in fact. Jacob, what's going on with that today? You are just speaking my language here. It is nerve blocks. I love nerve blocks. I've been doing nerve blocks so much more since being in a less academic place than I was before where we don't have ortho in house. So I've been just like just devouring any case where I can do a nerve block. And this is one that I'm excited about. It's about the serratus plane block, like a relative of it. That's called the erector spinae block. So it's basically like a serratus plane block, but a little more posteriorly. This is entitled the erector spinae plane block for acute pain management in emergency department patients with rib fracture. Now, what they did here is they basically just did a case series. They had nine patients in the emergency department who all had rib fractures. They gave all of them about 40 cc's of diluted bupivacaine, and they all had a significant reduction in their pain. It's a pretty sweet pilot study, just something to think about in our patients that come in with intractable pain due to those rib fractures. I mean, I'm sure you've been in that situation, Mike, where you have patients with like multiple rib fractures. They're in a bunch of pain, so they're taking shallow breaths, and then you give them like some morphine and a little more morphine, a little more morphine and you're like are they taking shallow breaths because they're like hypoventilating from the morphine or is it because they have pain like i don't know that that happened to me a lot i don't know maybe doesn't maybe you're just better with your medications than i am but yeah that's why i usually you know intubate about 50 percent of my patients with one rib fracture for that reason maybe that's just me yeah, no, that's fine. But see, now, Mike, you have this tool in your tool belt called the Erector Spinae Plane Block that you can take care of. This is a great article uh, by some great people, and I would definitely check it out. I love doing that, especially for those posterior fractures where your serratus might not reach all the way to get that pain. So it's cool. We have some evidence now. Let's get into the main event. So what's the main article we're talking about today? Wow. All right. I don't know how you find all these like articles that I love so much. This one is about central lines, ultrasound guided central lines. It's called supraclavicular versus infraclavicular approach for ultrasound guided right subclavian venous catheterization, a randomized controlled non-inferiority trial. So what I like about this is, you know, we all do blind subclavians. Well, at least we used to. I used to. I used to love doing blind subclavians. And then I started reading up on the infraclavicular ultrasound guided subclavian. And I basically stopped doing blind because I realized how much more accurate you were, how much less likely you are to cause complications when you did it ultrasound guidance. This is the infraclavicular approach to it. Now, one thing when I was doing my background research, when I was like looking this up, when I was a fellow, I noticed that there was this thing called the supraclavicular approach, which is it's pretty easy. You just go, above the clavicle versus below the clavicle. And I kind of experimented. I looked a little bit and it seems like it's a pretty easy path, right? A lot shorter to the actual vein you're trying to cannulate. There's not a whole lot of like adipose tissue, breast tissue, or pectoralis muscle in the way if you do it that way. And to be honest, I'm not sure why, but I never really adopted this supraclavicular approach, even though it looked a little bit better. And I think part of it was because it seemed a little bit kind of off label with ultrasound. Now, in the olden times before we had ultrasound at all, especially in code, I heard anecdotally some of the older attendings that, you know, didn't have ultrasound. They said that in codes, they would often try the supraclavicular approach instead of the infraclavicular approach back in the day. But besides that, I really have no experience and I haven't really heard a lot of people talking about it. And that's why this article is so interesting. That was published in Anesthesia in the year 2022. And they looked at basically the supra versus the infraclavicular approach. 
Yeah, Jacob, I'm coming from a same place as you where I know a couple people that swear by doing supraclaviculars, but for me, I never quite figured out what the advantage was, but I thought this article was really fascinating. So these authors are asking the question about the rate of complications between these two approaches, comparing the ultrasound-guided supraclavicular to the ultrasound-guided infraclavicular. So you'll notice that implicit in this study is the fact that we should be doing ultrasound guidance for our subclavians. And I know not everybody's on board with that, but as you mentioned, there's a lot of evidence to support that practice now. So this was a single center in South Korea. They included adult patients who were actually getting an elective neurosurgery. So we have a pretty specific population right off the bat. These were all patients in the operating room who required central venous catheterization. They excluded anybody that had something that could get in the way of that wire, you know, like a, a port or something some other cannulation already in that vessel. That makes sense. And then if they were on anticoagulation or had some sort of distorted anatomy, they were also excluded. The way that this worked, it was a randomized controlled trial. Pretty cool. They actually took patients that were going to get the line. They randomized them to get either a right subclavian infraclavicular or a right subclavian supraclavicular, both ultrasound guided. Now, it's important to know the way they ultrasound guided these was different. They did in-plane long-axis supraclavicular and a out-of-plane short-axis infraclavicular. Yeah, that one that kind of like bothered me a little bit, right? Because I mean, you're, you're comparing two different techniques with two different locations, which is, is a little, I don't know, like it would have been sweet if it was all the same, but just different location. So two different approaches. Their justification was that they thought the evidence kind of supported those two methods. I don't know, could go either way from my understanding of the evidence. But that's what they did. The other thing you should note is that these patients were already under general anesthesia and they actually paused their ventilation right before they hit the vessel. Can you imagine if we could do that? Like every patient that comes in, we're like, sorry, we had to put central line. We're going to intubate you. Yeah. So they that's a luxury. And they, I think, were trying to optimize their safety with having a non-inflated lung when they're doing these procedures that have been known to cause pneumothorax in the past. So understandable. And they basically, their primary outcome here was safety. They wanted to see were there complications with either of these two approaches. And the way that they defined that was actually a composite endpoint. So they combined a bunch of bad things and they treated them as one thing. So their complications were any catheter misplacement, meaning it was going in the wrong vessel or anywhere not towards the heart like it was supposed to, or mechanical complications such as arterial puncture, bleeding, hematoma, or pneumothorax. And then secondarily, they wanted to check how long is it taking, what's the first pass success rate, etc. Now, one really important caveat that you may have noticed from the title, this was a non-inferiority trial. And that becomes important based on how they try to report the results. Briefly, I think we've talked about non-inferiority trials before, but the idea is that you want to design a trial to not prove either is better, but you want to show that it's at least as good. And the whole reason you'd want to do that is if there's some other advantage to that approach. So in this case, they seem to be starting with the hypothesis that supraclavicular lines have some other advantage over infraclavicular. So if we can just show that they have about an equal complication rate, then it would be better for us to do the supra for some reason. That's putting it very simply, but they wanted to make it non-inferior only. So they did a power analysis. They needed about 200 patients in each group. And remember, these are anesthesiologists doing them. They had all had at least 10 times doing both approaches. So let's talk about the results, Jacob. What did they end up finding? 
So the results are, are interesting. I already kind of like mentioned like one of my things was they're not, I feel like they're comparing like tangerines and oranges. You know what I mean? Like it's not like, it's not like apples and oranges, like tangerines and oranges. All right, let's talk about it. So they ended up including 416 patients. They had to exclude a few. So it was a 401 total. They found that they had a rate of complications of 13.4% with the infraclavicular, that's a standard kind of approach, versus 3% with a supraclavicular approach with a different of 10.4%. So what that means, Mike, that means that we should stop doing infraclaviculars, right? We should completely never do infraclaviculars again, according to this, right? 13% versus 3%, right? That's right. Thanks for listening to the podcast, everyone. We'll talk to you next time. This is actually like one of my problems. And, you know, I'm so stoked about this article because I'm unaware of one that kind of directly compares these two previous this well and just randomized and this big of a group of people. But my problem here is the composite outcome. Like the composite outcome to me is, is, I don't know, like it's not great. What they should have done is they should have compared mechanical complications and catheter misplacements as two different types of complications. Because if you misplace your, your central line, and this is talking as an emergency medicine physician, if I, if I put a, and this is not like arterial placement, by the way, this is that the end, like the tip of the catheter was wasn't in the uh, superior vena cava. So if I have a crashing patient and I get a line in in the right subclavian and it goes over to the left subclavian, I'm leaving that in. It's it's a it's a catheter in the vein. I would like to redirect it eventually, but I can still use that in the meantime, right? Versus if I cause cannulation of the artery or if I cause a pneumothorax, that's a completely like different thing. That's like chest tube that is like compression, possible surgery. And when you actually look at their rates of catheter mis placement versus mechanical complication, the rate of catheter misplacement was significantly higher with that infraclavicular versus the supraclavicular. So we got 10.4% versus 1% with that supraclavicular. And then when you look at the mechanical complications, the ones that probably matter a bit more, there really is, I mean, there's no difference, right, Mike? I mean, they're they're about the same as far as, they're low, they're about 3% at the most with, and that's 3% mechanical complications with the infraclavicular versus 2% with the supraclavicular. But that to me makes it the same, you know, like not any worse although the misplacements matter. I mean, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I totally agree with you. You know, the misplacement thing, not nearly as important as the mechanical complications. And so it's interesting that they group them together and then say, look, the supraclavicular came out on top with complications overall, but really it was, it came out on top with not the, the lines not going the wrong direction or up towards the head. Yeah, agreed. And I was, I've actually been thinking about it. And I feel like so that I have a couple of like tricks for making sure that the guide wire goes in the superior vena cava, not, you know, across. And one of them is like making sure that the, uh, you know, the J hook on the guide wire, making sure that that faces down and that the curl of the guide wire is actually in the direction of down, like towards the patient's feet to kind of help it like go down that way. And then the other thing is I push the guide wire in super duper slowly because I want the blood as it returns to kind of guide it down there. And I feel like every time that I've pushed it really quickly, it's much more likely to be in the wrong vein. So you go slow, the blood eventually kind of helps get it down into the superior vena cava. And additionally, the other thing that probably is happening here is if you come from a superior approach, your angle is from superior to inferior as like a as like a whole, right? Whereas if you're going subclavian, your angle is actually more inferior to superior, right? With the angle at which you're advancing that guide wire. So you're much more likely to go across or up the IJ if you're coming from below rather than up top. Mm, yeah. 
Really good point. So speaking about other secondary outcomes, the time for venous puncture was a little bit less with a supraclavicular, nine seconds versus 13 seconds with the infraclavicular, but I don't know, four seconds isn't that big of a deal. And then the overall success, first pass success, and as I mentioned, the time required was all essentially the same. Yeah, so when I look at this study, I like it because it's a really important question. Now that we're doing more ultrasound-guided subclavians, should you go above or below clavicle? That's a cool question. So I liked that. They did it the right way. They did a randomized controlled trial and pretty good sample here, 200 in each group, and they met their power calculation. So that's great. Now, some of the limitations are pretty obvious. This is a pretty specific group of people that are getting their neurosurgery, so that's not going to apply to everyone. They're all pretty controlled environments, so this isn't going to apply to like crashing patients that are hypotensive and super sick, that's who we're often doing central lines in. So we don't know if we can really apply that to the people that are going to need a central line in any case. And then we mentioned the composite outcome. And we have to bring up again the non-inferior design because the authors take this data and they say, hey, the supraclavicular is better than the infraclavicular. And you can't actually say that when you design your study as a non-inferiority trial. So it's a little bit unclear why they did that but it might have to do something with how many patients they thought they could recruit or maybe some of the advantages they don't discuss. But in any case, all we can say at the conclusion of this is that it was non-inferior. So they met their criteria, it's non-inferior. And then Jacob, like you mentioned, the other thing to bring up is the short versus long or in-plane versus out-of-plane. I don't know if that's really been fully established for subclavian ultrasound guidance. So this is just one way to do either of them. I know a lot of people who do infraclavicular subclavians in long axis, which is not what they did here. And to me, it's just a discussion of whether you'd prefer to hit the artery or you'd rather hit the lung. Short axis, you get to see the subclavian artery the whole time. You could lose sight of your needle tip. If you do it in long axis, you get to see your needle tip the whole time so you're less likely to get a pneumothorax you can also kind of line it up with the first rib if you do a nice job so i could i could see either way quick thing about the actual technique it's very difficult especially if you don't have a really small transducer to actually fit it in the short axis and the supraclavicular recess so that's why if you're doing a supraclavicular subclavian you want to have your probe in the long axis relative to the vein and then i i don't know how you are mike but i like doing my central lines actually most of my IV axis in the short axis so i wonder if that's why i did long with the top because you have to and then did short with the bottom because it's easier to do it that way i think i like it i like it it reminds me of a haircut long with the top short with the bottom now we have to bring up the elephant in the room why don't we just do an internal jugular line you know why are you not just doing an ij straight shot all pointed towards the feet unlikely to get going up the the contralateral side what do you think jacob i mean my thoughts are yes if everything's good everything's the same a patient's laying there ventilating calm i'm gonna go for a right ij because at least likely to cause complications more likely to be in the right spot but and i don't know if what th that's what these guys were going with there's a couple of things the first one is in emergency department patients sometimes you get patients that are trauma and they have the c collar on and you can't really you know you can't place an ij because they have a c collar on that's one Although with a C collar, I'd, a supraclavicular might be tough too. The other one too is patient comfort. I suspect, I've never had a central line before, but I suspect I'd rather have a line in my chest rather than a line in my neck. So those are like the two reasons why I might choose a subclavian over an IJ. Yeah, great points. I totally agree. Well, let's summarize this article. So in 401 patients who are getting elective neurosurgery, the ultrasound-guided supraclavicular central line 
came out non-inferior to the infraclavicular ultrasound-guided central line in terms of safety outcomes. And the supraclavicular group had about 10% less complications, almost exclusively catheter misplacements. So our take-home points from this article is number one, ultrasound-guided supraclavicular central lines are non-inferior to infraclavicular. Two, based on the rarity of those mechanical complications, you know, pneumothorax and arterial punctures were actually really uncommon in this study. So it may not have been large enough to actually prove a difference between these two groups. And then lastly, more research is needed in more diverse populations of patients and maybe some outside of the operating room or controlled settings like that. We thank the authors of this article, really brilliant work, and we appreciate how it adds to our understanding of ultrasound-guided subclavians. And thank you listeners for hanging in there with us. We appreciate you coming back time and time again. So until next time, we will talk to you later. We're going to intubate you and then not ventilate you for a while while we're doing this.